acquittal or dismissal in all articles of impeachment satisfies, satisfies Texas Constitution Article 15, Section 5. The Texas Senate acquits Attorney General Ken Paxton after a high-profile impeachment trial. For Saturday, September 16th, it's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. It's been one year since the death of a young woman in police custody triggered nationwide protests in Iran. We'll look at what changed and what hasn't in the country. I myself never thought that a simple protest would cost me so much, would turn my life upside down. We'll also examine how Rotten Tomatoes has changed the movie industry and four years into the chicken sandwich wars. Oh, baby, I got we will look at why they seem to be here to stay. All that and more after these news headlines. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. In Texas, the state Senate has acquitted Ken Paxton of 16 impeachment charges against him. The embattled Republican state attorney general was accused of bribery and obstruction of justice. The Texas newsroom's Sergio Martinez-Veltron has more. Prosecutors had made the case that Paxton misused his office by shielding a political donor from an FBI investigation and that Paxton had benefited from helping that donor. Paxton has been suspended from his duties as attorney general since May when the Texas House of Representatives voted to impeach him. Today's vote automatically reinstates Paxton to his role as attorney general, a position he's used to create a national profile as an advocate for conservative values and as a policy challenger of Democratic presidents. Ahead of the vote, Texas Republican state senators received pressure from GOP leaders who promised to challenge those who supported a conviction. For NPR News, I'm Sergio Martinez-Beltran in Austin. Post-tropical storm Lee made landfall in far western Nova Scotia today. The National Hurricane Center says the storm had maximum sustained winds of 70 miles an hour and is causing problems for the northeast U.S. In eastern Maine, many residents lost power this morning. Maine Public's Murray Carpenter has more. The storm is hitting down east Maine hardest with gusty wind and heavy rain. This is a rural area where woods are interspersed with blueberry barrens and small coastal towns with fleets of lobster boats. With many hunkering down for the storm, the roads are mostly empty, except for the line crews that are working to restore power. Some crews came from New Brunswick, just over the Canada border, to provide assistance. President Biden approved an emergency declaration for Maine on Friday to allow federal assistance for storm recovery. For NPR News, I'm Murray Carpenter in Machias, Maine. And Lee is expected to weaken tonight as it moves across Canada. Automakers and the Auto Workers Union have returned to the bargaining table today to try to hammer out a deal. As NPR's Andrea Shu reports, the talks are resuming as some 13,000 workers are out on strike. UAW President Sean Fain has been clear negotiations have not broken down. He says the two sides are still trading proposals. Sharon Block, professor at Harvard Law School, says that's very different from an impasse. The party's just sort of using a different tool, another tool, to try to change the dynamics at the bargaining table. The UAW has said it has put workers at other plants on notice that they could be called on at any time to join the strike, a strategy the union hopes will keep the automakers off balance. The car companies say they have already put historic offers on the table. In the case of GM, the most generous offer in more than 100 years. Andrea Hsu, NPR News. And you're listening to NPR News from Washington.
This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Josie Guarino. The Boston University Center for Anti-Racist Research is laying off the majority of its staff. BU says the center is switching to a fellowship model and says Dr. Ibram X. Kendi remains the director. The center opened in 2020 amid nationwide racial justice protests. Boston Police Commissioner Michael Cox says the department is reassigning some officers in an effort to fill patrol shifts. Cox also says that effort to fill 500 open positions on the force is a complicated one. WBUR's Amanda Beland has more. Commissioner Cox tells Radio Boston one hindrance has been images of past police abuse that were widely viewed during the pandemic. Young people saw this, and that's part of who we recruit to come on this job, right? You want to give back to the world. You you want to give back to society. You want to help. This job is a service job. But now there's a lot of people who don't want to be associated with it just because of the imagery involved with certainly this period. Cox says the department is working to address staffing gaps. Efforts include temporarily rotating officers from special units to patrol shifts to relieve stress on the entire department. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amanda Beland. The Sumner Tunnel is closed this weekend after the two-month total shutdown this summer for the ongoing renovations. The state is now resuming closures for eight more weekends this year. The tunnel will completely shut down again next summer. The Red Sox are in the lead against the Blue Jays. It's 2-1, top of the seventh. A high surf advisory remains in effect through 11 o'clock tomorrow morning, and it's going to be a nice beach day tomorrow. Mostly sunny skies, highs near 80, cooler along the coast. Monday, we'll see some showers, highs in the upper 60s. And for Tuesday, mostly sunny, highs in the mid-70s. Right now, we have 70 degrees and pretty breezy out there right now in Boston under mostly cloudy skies. You're listening to 90.9 WBUR. It's 5.06. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the Rockefeller Foundation, making opportunity universal and sustainable for over 100 years. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. The Texas Senate has found State Attorney General Ken Paxton not guilty during an impeachment trial where he faced 16 charges of corruption, bribery, and more. That means Paxton now goes back to work as Attorney General, a job that brought him so much power and attention in Texas and on the national level. Paxton had been suspended from the job after he was impeached by the state's House of Representatives. Texas newsroom political reporter Sergio Martinez Beltran has been in the Texas State House in Austin for the whole thing. Hey there. Hi. So Paxton was impeached by the House by a wide margin, including a lot of Republicans. Is it fair to call this acquittal a surprise? Well, yes and no. Um, Senators deliberated for about nine hours over these accusations that Paxton abused his office to protect a political donor. It's not surprising because this is a Republican-led Senate and prosecutors had to convince two-thirds, so 21 out of 30 eligible senators, to get a conviction. But it is a surprise in the sense that House impeachment managers said there was enough evidence to support a conviction. And mind you, when Ken Paxton was impeached in the Texas House in May, a majority of Republicans voted in favor. So I think there was an expectation that the same was going to happen in the Senate. Mm, yeah, and it, and it didn't. So, so the next question is, during the 10 days of this trial, were the, was there any key testimony, any key moments that may have changed minds in his favor? 
Yes, I think there was a memorable moment for the defense, and it happened early in the trial. The prosecutors called Ryan Vassar to the witness stand. Vassar was one of Paxton's deputies who reported him to the FBI. And at one point, Vassar was asked by a defense attorney about what evidence he brought to the FBI. You went to the FBI on September 30th with your compatriots and reported the elected attorney general of this state for a crime without any evidence. Yes? That's right. We took no evidence. And the defense hung on to that testimony, arguing that the whistleblowers who reported Paxton, in fact, had no real evidence. What's been the reaction since the acquittal? Well, House impeachment managers talked to reporters after the vote, and they said they were disappointed with the Senate's decision. State Representative Andrew Murr, who is a Republican leading the impeachment managers, said the House met the burden of proof to convict. But Paxton supporters feel vindicated. State Senator Bob Hall, a Republican who since day one advocated for the dismissal of the charges, called the proceedings a sham. Millions of dollars were wasted because the House was on a mission without considering what it was going to take to get there. Hall and other Republicans in the Senate have vowed to change the Texas Constitution to make it harder to impeach public officials. What about uh, Ken Paxton? What's next for him now? This is not the end of Paxton's legal issues. The FBI is investigating these corruption allegations. Paxton has also been under indictment since 2015 for securities fraud, but has yet to face a trial. In the meantime, Paxton will return to the AG's office immediately. Uh, Paxton has a history of suing the Biden administration on issues like abortion and federal spending. And in a statement today, he told the Biden administration to buckle up because he's back. That's Sergio Martinez Beltran in Austin. Thank you so much for your work covering this trial. You're welcome. The family of Masa Amini visited her grave in northwestern Iran today on the one-year anniversary of her death while in the custody of Iran's morality police. Amini's death sparked nationwide protests that triggered a brutal crackdown by security forces. And today at the graveyard, that show of government force continued with a massive swarm of soldiers and police. NPR's Peter Kenyon has been speaking with Iranians forced to flee their homeland in the wake of the uprising. They see a population still desperate for greater freedoms and government determined to prevent that at all costs. Nelly is 32 years old. She's from Hamadan in western Iran, where she used to work in the tourism sector. Now she's left Iran. Nelly asks that her family name and precise location not be disclosed. She's concerned about retaliation for speaking about the nationwide protests and the crackdown by security forces. She says what strikes her most is the momentum the protest movement has gained, especially among Iranians who weren't part of the street demonstrations and who may have been dismayed at the fury directed toward the government. After one year, a large group of people who used to be in the gray zone, who hadn't made up their mind, have gained higher awareness now. We can see that many have become really brave, and this is the biggest achievement. But she says the government has fallen back on its usual response, trying to frighten people into compliance. She says one tactic is to issue dramatic warnings about the chaos that could break out if the protests caused the regime to fall from power. She says that's worrying, but not insurmountable. These are ideas, debates, and arguments among people. But I believe they will finally reach a consensus. And they can finally figure out what the majority wants perhaps through a referendum. 21-year-old Milad Abdi was a university student in Iran when he joined the anti-regime demonstrations, only to be arrested, imprisoned, and forced to flee the country once he was released. 
He's from Sakez in northwest Iran, where authorities have been busy installing concrete blocks and other barriers and inspecting vehicles trying to enter Masa Amini's hometown. Abdi says he's still convinced a new wave of protests will take place in Iran sometime soon, although perhaps not in Sakez itself, which he says is even more locked down than usual. He also doesn't think protests this year would rival last year's in size or intensity. I don't think there's any less desire for change from the people's point of view, but the government has only increased its crackdowns. People get more wounded every day. Their hatred of the regime gets higher every day. The regime does not care about any of this at all. Their only focus is their own survival and enforcement of things like the hijab. Abdi says he knows he's suffered because of his willingness to stand up to the regime. But as the anniversary approaches, he finds himself thinking about others who have nobody speaking out for them. I myself never thought that a simple protest would cost me so much, would turn my life upside down. There are people in Iran who have no voice and nobody knows them. There is no hashtag in their name, no foreign political guardian, and we must be their voice. We should not forget them. The government crackdown continues with mass arrests and court-ordered death sentences, and the morality police have been reactivated. But both Abdi and Nelly have faith that the movement sparked by Masa Amini's death will continue in the coming year, but they also know that the struggle is unlikely to get any easier. Peter Kenyon, NPR News, Istanbul. Loneliness and social isolation have major implications for our health. Healthcare providers and insurers are starting to pay more attention to these risks. And in Massachusetts, there is a program to help people make friends. Priyanka Dayal McCluskey of member station WBUR has more. The pool is a favorite hangout spot for Jason Silverman and his friend Melissa Mills. They sip slushies, and Silverman climbs the stairs to the water slide. He lands with a big splash. You're fast on that slide. Silverman has Down syndrome, and talking is sometimes difficult, but he has ways of communicating. He smiles, sighs, and sometimes leads Mills by the arm. They meet once a month and go to the gym in Framingham, Massachusetts. They always start with a treadmill or bike. You're doing it. One minute, one minute and a half left. Then Mills helps Silverman order lunch at a cafe. Cheeseburger. Cheeseburger? Yes. Okay. This relationship started through a program called the Friendship Project. Its goal is to reduce loneliness and social isolation, especially for people with disabilities and mental health conditions who are more likely to feel lonely. And Mills says they hit it off right away. And we laugh and don't worry about anything when we're together. There's no stress, there's no pressure. We're just here to hang out. For Silverman, the outings are a break from the mornings he spends watching TV alone. His mom, Stephanie Lynch, says he seems happier. And it's just human. People need companionship. They need to feel part of something. And I think he really feels part of something when he goes to the gym. The Friendship Project is run by a human services agency called Advocates. Jeff Kielsen is senior vice president. If there's ways that we could really support people by connecting them with others, then we absolutely should do that. There are health and financial imperatives, too. A growing body of research shows when people are lonely, they're at higher risk of becoming sick with illnesses like heart disease, stroke, and dementia. And Kielsen says it's too early for data, but he hopes the program will reduce some hospital visits. 
A lot of people, particularly with mental health conditions, use emergency rooms just to connect with people. Advocates is working with some health insurers to expand the initiative beyond people with disabilities and mental health conditions. A recent report from the U.S. Surgeon General underscores the urgency of this work. It says loneliness is a national epidemic and raises the risk of premature death as much as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Our social networks seem to be shrinking. Daniel Cox is senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. His research finds Americans have fewer close friends than they used to. Cox says he's heartened to see more healthcare leaders focus on friendship. If the goal is to help people live longer, healthier lives, this is a pretty obvious intervention. Friendship can take different forms. For Michelle Somerville and Ida Rodriguez, it's a phone call every Tuesday. Here they are on one recent call. I can go anywhere and have this conversation with you. Right now, I'm part of Taco Bell. <laughs> You're at Taco Bell? Oh my goodness, I like the burrito bowl. The pair met through Commonwealth Care Alliance, a Boston-based health insurer for seniors and people with significant medical needs. Rodriguez says her social life slowed down as she got older. The weekly check-ins remind her she has a friend. And Somerville says she likes hearing about the books Rodriguez is reading. I want someone to read to me, but I don't want to read myself. So it was a match made in heaven. The women have never met in person, but they look forward to these weekly chats. And their connection could be good for their health, too. For NPR News, I'm Priyanka Dale-McCluskey in Boston. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Thanks for choosing 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Josie Guarino. Keep in mind, WBUR's Field Guide to Boston is a new way to experience this place we call home. Go on and get out there. Find your way at WBUR.org slash field guide. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Gore Place in Waltham. Experience live classical and traditional music in the 1793 Carriage House, September 20th. Goreplace.org. We can expect mostly cloudy skies for tonight. Breezy lows in the upper 50s. Right now, 70 degrees in Boston. WBUR supporters include Emmanuel Music. Pianist Simona Dinnerstein returns Saturday, September 23rd, performing three concerti of Bach, Glass, and Mozart, emmanuelmusic.org, and Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square, with cooking and baking workshops, technique and regional cuisine series, and cooking couples classes, cambridgeculinary.com. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton was acquitted of 16 counts of impeachment, accusing him of misconduct, bribery, and corruption in a rare state Senate trial. He's been suspended since May, but was immediately reinstated after the verdict today. Lee has made landfall in far western Nova Scotia. The National Hurricane Center says the storm had maximum sustained winds of 70 miles an hour when it hit land. The storm is kicking up surf and causing storm surges along the northeast U.S. coast. And in London, police arrested a 25-year-old man early this morning after he allegedly climbed over a wall and entered the royal stables at Buckingham Palace. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News.
Support for NPR comes from this station and from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global communities make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. And from Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at carnegie.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. Right now, members of the actors and screenwriters unions are still on strike, walking picket lines in Hollywood. But that hasn't stopped movie studios from pushing the content they already have out to the public. And that's how you get ads like these. Oppenheimer is magnificent. The New York Times calls it staggering. Critics and audiences agree. Bottoms is a hit. It's the best-reviewed comedy of the year. It's pretty insane. And if you're trying to decide what movie to see, and sometimes that's a hard choice because ticket prices can be $20 or more, a film's biggest selling point might be this. Audiences and critics cannot believe what they're seeing with a 96% on Rotten Tomatoes. The Phantom of the Open is the crowd-pleasing feel-good film that will leave you cheering. And it's certified fresh from Rotten Tomatoes. Since its launch 25 years ago, the review aggregation website Rotten Tomatoes has become the be-all, end-all for many people deciding whether or not to see a movie. If you told a friend they had to see Oppenheimer... To help convince them, maybe you mentioned it had a 93% on Rotten Tomatoes. It was fresh. Other movies, like The Nun 2, lurking at just 47%, maybe not so much. Like any form of traditional media, I think the role of the critic has changed as the power of the critic has changed. Eric Deggins is NPR's TV critic. He got into the profession during the days when one critic could sway public opinion. And he says those days are gone. You know, at least when you're talking about sort of marquee name critics, uh, the Roger Ebert's, the Gene Siskel's, you know, uh, the folks who could determine the fate of a movie with a single review or at least a clutch of reviews, that isn't the case anymore. People use Rotten Tomatoes to get a consensus on whether or not to watch a movie or TV show. But there are flaws in the system. By combining and averaging reviews, it may be devaluing the voices it brings together. If you're over a certain age and you love movies, then there was definitely a point when you cared a lot about Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert. Now, what do these three very different films have in common? Each has played a key role in the development of two film critics. Their names? Siskel and Ebert. <laughs> I'm Gene Siskel of the Chicago Tribune. And I'm Roger Ebert of the Chicago Sun-Times. They both movie started out doing movie reviews for newspapers, but it was their TV shows, sneak previews and at the movies, where the two Chicago critics developed the style of smart yet accessible discussions about film that became their trademark. I think the thing that set Siskel and Ebert apart was that they were, from the minute you saw them on TV and from the minute you heard them arguing one another, they either reminded you of yourself or they reminded you of someone you knew. I mean, they sometimes I watch them and it's kind of like watching two versions of my dad argue with one another about movies. Roger, my re uh, re rebuttal of this film is you're wrapping yourself in, in the flag of children and I'm saying go see the Black Stallion instead. There's a film with little dialogue. Oh, oh, so much better. On. I'm not wrapping myself in the flag of children. You're wrapping yourself in the flag of the sophisticated film no, critic boredom. who's seen it all. No, boredom. Brian Raftery is a journalist and podcaster based in Los Angeles. His podcast, Gene and Roger, examined their legacy, how they changed film criticism and how thumbs up or thumbs down became a part of the culture. 
I do think that Siskel and Ebert, by being so kind of accessible in their own ways, made you feel like you were maybe a little bit smarter about movies than you gave yourself credit for. And also, they covered everything. They were very egalitarian. They did not just cover um, sort of highbrow cinema. They covered junk, and sometimes they really championed junk. Raftery has thought a lot about what Siskel and Ebert would make of Rotten Tomatoes. I think the actual mechanics of Rotten Tomatoes and assigning a movie a number would probably probably drive Siskel and or Ebert kind of crazy. But I do think that even they would appreciate the idea that a lot of different people are getting to chime in now about movies from different regions, from different vantage points, from different cultural backgrounds. That only, you know, I'm all for I'm all for as many movie conversations as, you know, the world and the Internet can hold at one point. To dig deeper into how Rotten Tomatoes has affected film criticism, studios, and audiences, I spoke to Lane Brown, who kicked off another one of those conversations on the Internet with a recent article for Vulture entitled The Decomposition of Rotten Tomatoes. I also talked to Jamie Broadnax, the editor-in-chief of the culture site Black Girl Nerds. I started the conversation with both of them by asking Brown what he thinks is wrong in the way Rotten Tomatoes makes decisions about what's good or bad and how it presents that information. There are two main problems in, uh, in my mind for, uh, with the way the site works. And so the first one is uh, to calculate a movie's score, it uses a really simple, really reductive formula. Every review for a movie is classified as either rotten or fresh or positive or negative. And then to get a movie's overall score, the site just divides the number of positive reviews by the number of reviews. And so there's no attempt at all to distinguish between slightly positive and very positive reviews. And so a movie can get 100% based on just okay reviews. And so a mediocre movie can do really well on Rotten Tomatoes. And a movie that is great but a little challenging might lose points because it's not a total across-the-board crowd pleaser. And so you'll find, you know, movies like Paddington 2 will have, uh, you know, a 99% Rotten Tomatoes, which is, you know, six points higher than Raging Bull, which seems uh, slightly incorrect, I would say. Uh, so that's the first problem. Another big problem with the site is that movies get a score after only a handful of reviews have been published, sometimes as few as five. And a movie's first score usually seems to set the tone for the way the bad movie is received. And so studios have figured out how to game this. And to get a high initial score, they'll just make sure that the critics who see their movies first are the ones most likely to give positive reviews. And so for a superhero movie, there's a whole universe of websites that, you know, now only write about superhero movies and tend to be kinder to them than, say, you know, the snobs that write for other outlets. Yeah. And uh, so you'll often see a movie debut with a really high score because the studios have corked the bat. And then that score will fall by a lot once more critics have weighed in. Just selectively having certain people review and publish those reviews at certain times. I, I'm specifically remembering this one. I forget who did it. This review of The Flash. This is the greatest superhero movie of all time that gets out there way before I saw it. I can assure you it was not. <laughs> Facts. Jamie, uh, there's a, a bunch of things I want to ask you about as a critic with this. Have you found yourself trying to navigate as a critic the world that that, that, that Lane writes about of the ways that, that the site has swayed studio behavior of when and how they're trying to introduce certain critics to movies and, 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 and get reviews published at certain times? Um, how can I answer this without getting in trouble with the studios? <laughs> uh, <laughs> um... Rotten Tomatoes is become bigger than what it initially the site was built upon. And it was mostly just about film nerds giving their opinions about films and whether it was 
you know, hot or not. Like it, it kind of was a riff off of what Cisco and Ebert did with thumbs up, thumbs down. And now it has become this huge sort of marketing tool for a lot of studios. So, you know, I, I understand the importance for them to want to get the reviews on the site. But that being said, uh, I, I just want to make sure that, you know, what we put on for Black Girl Nerds, our reviews are always filled with integrity, are always true to what the critic actually, you know, is seeing and wants to put out there into the world about how they feel about the film, regardless of our relationship with the studio, you know, whether they like it or not, that's going to be our review period. And that's something that I educate to all of my writers is even if it's a superhero film or whatever genre it is, if you don't like it, you don't like it. And it's going to go up on Rotten Tomatoes regardless. Lane, I want to get back to to something you you mentioned and 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 was a big part of your piece, and that's and that's the ways that studios are now trying to time premieres to try and you know game the game the system here. Uh, and and one example that you had of this actually working out really poorly was the decision of Disney to premiere the latest Indiana Jones sequel at at Con, which. You could see the big fancy reception and 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 you can you could see why they did that on one hand, but then you have a whole bunch of highbrow critics come out and say, Yeah, this movie stunk. And those early reviews were very bad and, and they seem to hurt the movie's uh opening first few weeks. Yeah, it, it was funny. It's a, they have this this big spectacle at the Cannes Film Festival, it's a five minute standing ovation. Harrison Ford is weeping as they present him with this, you know, uh, honorary Palme d'Or for a you know, lifetime achievement. And you know, in the olden days, that kind of spectacle might uh, have actually sort of translated into sort of warm early buzz, but not in 2023. And so now the only thing that really matters to come out of a, a film festival like this is that Rotten Tomatoes score. And so, yeah, you show it to a bunch of snobby critics at Cannes and you know, it translates to a 33% Rotten Tomatoes score, which sort of instantly sets the tone for, uh, for that movie's reception. And they just have this low Rotten Tomato score sitting out there for a month before the movie arrives in theaters. And so a lot of people just didn't turn out uh, in theaters. And so you have this movie that cost $300 million just because it had a you know, bad word of mouth you know, via that, that early Rotten Tomato score. Jamie, I wanted to broaden this out to you. I think one reason why, why this uh, Lane's article jumped out to me is that because this is, this is a trend in the world of criticism, but it's a trend in so many other things right now news, politics, many other things. And that's like the broader democratization of, of the world of movie critics, right? This is not this is not an elite handful of people swaying opinion across America anymore. It's so much more of a broad pool. When you think about that trend, do you think the, there's more good there or more bad there? Like, like, what do you make of where we are compared to 10 or 20 or 30 years ago when it comes to the world of movie criticism? I mean, I think it's a good thing. I, you know, I, I want to be careful where, you know, we criticize or we're diminishing the work of like small online creators, people that don't have large platforms or work for trade publications, that somehow they're not seen as worthy of being a film critic as someone who works for the New York Times or writes for The Guardian. Um, Because, you know, we as smaller bloggers and journalists really love and appreciate film just the same and we're a part of accredited film organizations and and guilds that 
we work hard to be a part of those and watch tons and tons of films throughout the year and vote on those films respectively. So we, we have a lot of um, subject matter expertise in this line of work. So just because our audience isn't at the same capacity as those bigger publications doesn't necessarily mean that our work is, you know, not as valuable. So I say all of that to say that it's important that the pool is wider. However, I do have concerns, and I think Lane's article touched on that, that there are critics out there that are willing to accept payment for uh, having their articles put on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, so I think it's probably the onus is on the platform to really vet harder who they're bringing into their pool of critics and making sure that these are people that are in it for film criticism, that these are people that are in it because they're passionate about films, because they love film. I mean, I, a lot of us do this for a living. I do it for a living, but also, you know, you do it because you love the work as well. But yeah, to kind of answer your question, I know I'm taking the scenic route, but I think it is important to widen that pool because there was a very, you know, there was a time that wasn't so long ago where um, there was only, you know, a few group of people that were allowed to uh, criticize films and those people did not look like me. To Jamie's point, I, I think it is important that Rotten Tomatoes vets a little bit more carefully than they have been. And I will tell you, one person who absolutely should not be a uh, Rotten Tomatoes tomato meter approved critic is me. And yet, somehow, I never asked for this and didn't even realize that I was a tomato meter approved critic until about uh, three days after I published my piece. But uh, apparently I am. They added me to the site. They turned a whole bunch of blog posts that I wrote 15 years ago into reviews. They weren't actually reviews. I'm not a critic. Never claimed to be a critic. Don't want to be a critic. The world is a worse place for having my stupid opinions in it. Uh, and yet, somehow, uh, my vote is, you know, on Rotten Tomatoes is exactly the same. I have just as much voting power as Jamie or uh, any of the other critics on there. And that just seems uh, ridiculous to me. I... Uh, so I, I think that, you know, they it, it's it's certainly better that the pool is wider. There is more great criticism happening now than there has ever been. It's coming from all different places. But I do think Rotten Tomatoes, you know, the platform, the onus is on them, as Jamie said, to to vet and uh, and make sure that everybody who's on there should be on there. That was Lane Brown, a feature writer for New York Magazine and Vulture, and Jamie Broadnax, film critic and editor-in-chief at arts and culture site Black Girl Nerds. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. After a week of intense criticism, the governor of New Mexico is walking back her attempt to restrict guns. Last week, Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham issued a public health order banning the open or concealed carrying of firearms in public places in Albuquerque and the surrounding county. A federal judge quickly issued a temporary block on the order when gun rights groups sued, and now the governor is back with a far less restrictive order. Megan Myskowski with member station KUNM reports. In 2021, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention ranked New Mexico third in the nation for gun-related deaths per capita when adjusted for age. One day this week, 
about 25 of the patients here at the University of New Mexico Hospital in Albuquerque are recovering from recent gunshot wounds. There's several of them that are paralyzed and there's several of them that are missing limbs. Dr. Richard Miskimmons is the trauma medical director here. It can't be lumped into one thing. It's not a single solution to a single problem. It's not gun violence. It's suicide by firearm. It's assault by firearm. In recent weeks, a five-year-old girl and an 11-year-old boy were killed in separate shootings. Governor Lujan Grisham said that spurred her to act. Particularly looking at the horrific nature of New Mexico's situation as it relates to children and their families does require a crisis level immediate set of actions. She issued an emergency public health order making it illegal to carry a gun in public, openly or concealed, in Albuquerque and surrounding Bernalillo County. Lawsuits against it were filed within hours. Protesters gathered in public with their guns, and New Mexico's Attorney General Raul Torres, who, like the governor, is a Democrat, refused to defend the order. A few days later, a federal judge temporarily suspended the order's firearm restrictions until the lawsuits could be heard. The governor called a press conference yesterday modifying the restrictions on carrying guns so it only applies to public parks and playgrounds. It's modified so that we're showing the relationship to protecting kids and families. Gun rights advocates like Ellen Gottlieb with the Second Amendment Foundation say it's still in conflict with the law. Quite frankly, it isn't going to matter because parks are covered by the Second Amendment as well for people who carry firearms. That's Gottlieb's opinion. But so far, there's no unanimity among federal courts about gun restrictions in sensitive areas like parks. Legal scholars say it's one of many questions the Supreme Court may have to clarify. Governor Lujan Grisham defended the order at her press conference yesterday. What you're seeing in New Mexico is that we're just willing to do something significant about it and not wait for Congress or anybody else to act. UCLA law professor Adam Winkler writes on gun policy and says the court blocking the governor isn't surprising. The U.S. Supreme Court struck down a New York ban on handguns in public last year, saying it violated the Second Amendment. I don't know. Perhaps it was done for political reasons. Perhaps the governor wants to put on uh, the table for genuine debate restrictions on concealed carry. Albuquerque's mayor and police chief spoke out against the governor's initial public health order and then sent her a laundry list of requests including tighter laws, more funding, and a stronger system for behavioral health. Luhan Grisham says she plans to fulfill many, if not all of them. For NPR News, I'm Megan Myskowski in Albuquerque. This is NPR News. Thanks for choosing 90.9 WBUR. I'm Josie Guarino. It's 539, coming up at 6, moving through loss and unexpected sources of comfort and bonds forged in grief. Stories of healing on the next Moth Radio Hour on 90.9 WBUR. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org slash cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Huntington Theater, kicking off their thrilling new season with Joshua Harmon's Prayer for the French Republic, now through October 8th. Tickets at HuntingtonTheater.org. Stanhope Framers. 
Back Bay in Somerville, celebrating 51 years of museum-quality custom frames for individuals, artists, and businesses, stanhopeframers.com. And Cambridge Science Festival, presenting an evening of live comedy, film screenings, performance poetry, art installations, and more, Friday, September 30th, cambridgesciencefestival.org. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. Talks continue today between Ford, GM, and Stellantis, parent company of Jeep and Chrysler, as the United Auto Workers strike continues for a second day. Some 13,000 workers are out on that strike. The sticking issues are pay, work hours, and electric vehicles. Hundreds of people protested in London today on the first anniversary of the death of a 22-year-old Kurdish woman by Iranian police after she was accused of violating the Islamic Republic's dress code. And in Libya, the Red Crescent says the death toll from the recent floods in the port city of Derna now stands at 11,000, with some 10,000 listed as missing. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. From Luminescence Foundation, dedicated to shedding light on neurological research focused on Alzheimer's and Parkinson's diseases and supporting land conservation initiatives. And from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation at rwjf.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. For generations, the car in America has come to symbolize freedom. There are a couple things America got right. Cars and freedom. And the freedom of wide open space disappearing into endless sky. It's not just a car, it's your freedom. And for many, freedom and privacy go hand in hand. It's hard to have one without the other. But according to a new report, your car could be worse than your phone when it comes to privacy. As cars become more like computers on wheels with apps and smart screens and cameras and endless digitized features, there are more and more opportunities for car companies to collect user data. The recent report from the Mozilla Foundation's Privacy Not Included which researches and publishes consumer guides on privacy, details the many security risks associated with cars. Among all the products the organization has ever reviewed, cars have gotten the worst privacy ratings. None of the car companies they reviewed met their minimum privacy safety standards. Jen Kaltrider is the lead at Privacy Not Included and joins me now. Thanks for talking with me, Jen. Well, thank you for having me. So in... One of the posts that you all wrote about this report, there was a sentence that jumped out at me, and I'm just going to read it and start there. There's probably no other product that can collect as much information about what you do, where you go, what you say, and even how you move your body with, quote, gestures than your car. That was really surprising to me, and then I thought about it for a few minutes, and I thought, well, maybe that shouldn't be surprising. Like, what, 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 what is going on here, and how new is this phenomenon? 
Yeah, you know, people don't buy cars as often as we buy phones or download apps or things like that. So it might come as a surprise to people that cars are computers on wheels, or even in some cases, maybe even robots on wheels. You know, they have sensors that can track us and not just where we're going, but how much we weigh and, and how we're moving, how many people are in the vehicle. There's microphones, there's cameras facing in, there's cameras facing out. Cars now come with ways to share data, cellular data or Wi-Fi data out from the car that, that are kind of invisible to people. And then there's the connected services, the things that you use to navigate or listen to the radio or, you know, call emergency services and apps. Cars come with apps now that let you remotely start them or honk the horn. All of that is collecting tons of data. Do you have a sense where this data is going? Because some of it makes sense. Like, I don't love the idea of a car tracking everywhere I'm going and my speeds and patterns, but I understand these these automated systems that are in the name of car safety, right? Trying to sense when a crash might be coming or things like that. But a lot of the stuff that you talked about has absolutely nothing to do with driving a car. Where is that information going? Oh, gosh. Well, the car companies collect it, and then they have it. They own it. And they say they can share it in tons and tons of places. Like, you think of car companies, they're huge. They can share it with affiliates, with service providers. They can sell it to people that buy data to make more money often, like data brokers. One of the things that really raised our eyebrows of, of how they're, they, they say they can share this data is we saw companies say they could share data with law enforcement or government based on something something as simple as an informal request and you know you don't want a company sharing your personal information with law enforcement you know you want them to get a court order and then limit the amount of information that that court order requires them to give up as much as possible and car companies saying hey uh, you know an informal request from law enforcement or government to share your personal information really raised eyebrows for us because that's such a low bar um, and you know when you've got things that that contain microphones and cameras and GPS tracking, it really starts to get a little creepy when you think about how that could be abused. What was the biggest surprise to you from this research that you did? The fact that all 25 of the car brands that we reviewed earned our privacy not included warning label is a real shocker because, you know, we've been doing privacy not included since 2017. And we try and tell people, hey, privacy is important. Buy this, not that, you know, your privacy will will do better. We can't do that with cars. Every single car brand that we reviewed is bad. It felt like car companies didn't consider privacy at all when they were writing their privacy policies. And that's really bad for consumers. So in the meantime, what's one or two specific things that somebody can do to uh, cut down on this other than just like ride a bike to work? I don't know. Like if you have to be in a car, what would you suggest? Don't download the app once you get a new car. Opt out of as much data collection as you can. Ask companies to delete your data, but depending on where you live, they might not um, because they aren't required to by law. A lot of these are Band-Aids that aren't going to be super effective. I actually think the, the best thing people can do right now is just to be mad about this and to contact their elected official and say, hey, can you find a way to do better to regulate these companies for privacy? Because I shouldn't have to be this worried in my car. This Jen call tried the lead at Privacy Not Included. Thanks so much for talking to us. Thank you. There's a lot of discontent with America's political system, including with primary elections. And many experts say party-based primaries shut out independent voters and make political polarization worse. That is why some states are turning to nonpartisan primaries. NPR's Ashley Lopez explains. 
Modern day primary elections were invented about 100 years ago. Kevin Kosar, a senior fellow at the right leaning American Enterprise Institute, says at the time they were considered a progressive reform aimed at getting rid of widespread corruption in the old way of picking candidates. But after 100 years of experimentation with this, we see that there are clear problems with this system, not least of which is that it produces candidates who frequently aren't particularly representative of the average voter. And there's a slew of reasons why experts think this is happening. Jeremy Gruber is with an advocacy group called Open Primaries. He says the first issue is that the electorate has gone through a massive sea change in the past decades. Gruber says when party primaries were first invented, almost everyone was either a Democrat or a Republican. Now, independents are the largest and fastest growing group of voters in the country. Over 50% of our young people, the next generation of voters, millennials and Gen Z voters are independent. Currently, 16 states have completely or partially closed primaries, meaning you have to be a member of the party to vote in them. Gruber says the growing number of unaffiliated voters is creating problems in these places. You're starting to see states that shut out independent voters have primary elections that are more and more insular and are producing candidates that are less and less representative because fewer and fewer people are able to participate in them. And that's throwing the whole system of democracy and elections out of whack. Of course, primaries aren't the only reason for polarization in American politics. Voters have also been sorting themselves further apart, which is why polarization is a problem in both open and closed primary systems. Lately, there's been a push for nonpartisan primaries. Andrew Sinclair, an assistant professor at Claremont McKenna College, says these kinds of primaries allow all voters to weigh in on all candidates. Voters are able to choose for every election amongst all of the candidates. So you're liberated as you go down the ballot. So I could vote for Republicans in three elections and Democrats in four of them or something like that. Currently, five states have nonpartisan primaries, California, Washington, Nebraska, Alaska, and Louisiana. In these places, either the top two or the top four vote getters, regardless of party, move on to the general election. Gruber says there's evidence that nonpartisan primaries create more responsive candidates because they aren't as tied to political parties. They can run based upon entirely how they see their constituency and the issues that their constituency prioritizes. So you're starting to see a lot more representative politicians coming out of these systems. But Sinclair says it's hard to say whether nonpartisan primaries have actually created more moderate or representative candidates. Research so far is pretty mixed. But he says it's undeniable that they've changed how campaigns run. Many politicians are in non-competitive states or districts, so their first worry is a primary challenger. But in nonpartisan primaries, he says, candidates might have to appeal to independents or members of the other party. And this might create more competitive races. For example, Sinclair says, in a deep blue state, voters might have to choose between two Democrats in a general election. Possibly the more moderate Democrat would have an advantage in that election, or perhaps the more competent or the more pragmatic. Although Sinclair says an all-Democratic general election might alienate conservative voters. But Kevin Kosar of AEI says ideally states, regardless of some of these trade-offs, would be more experimental with how they structure elections so that politics can become more palatable to voters. Certainly uh, a number of these electoral reforms aim to either depolarize or at least disincentivize gratuitously bad or toxic behavior, which 
in many cases, is rewarded by the current system. So if you change the incentives, the politicians are going to run differently. And I think a lot of people like that. There are already more states considering nonpartisan primaries. There are tentative proposals in South Dakota and Idaho, for instance. And Nevada voters will waive final approval of a nonpartisan system next year. Ashley Lopez, NPR News. I have a distinct memory from four years ago this month. I was driving around Nevada covering the presidential campaign, and I was repeatedly pulling up Google Maps. I was not trying to find the campaign rally I was headed to. I was trying to see if I was anywhere near a Popeye's so I could try yet again to find one of their red-hot, brand-new chicken sandwiches. America's new obsession with chicken sandwiches began four years ago when Popeye's added one to its menu— It led to the internet losing its mind, and then it quickly led to other competitors rushing out their own. And since then, we have all kept arguing, spicy or original, pickle or no pickle, once or double fried. Oh, baby, I got Popeyes. This sandwich right here, this sandwich right here. And now, Americans are happily caught between the warm slices of brioche bun and plenty of crunchy juicy options. On average, Americans today eat close to 100 pounds of chicken a year. And you just know a lot of chicken has to be consumed in the form of an oh-so-tasty fried chicken sandwich. Jonathan Mays is editor-in-chief for Restaurant Business Magazine, and he joins us from Dallas, where he is attending a restaurant conference. Welcome to All Things Considered. Thank you for having me. So I, I, I think one of the most interesting things is the fact that this has sustained itself. But before we get into that, let's just talk about that original moment four years ago. What do you think it was that made this stick? Just good branding? Like, like what do you think happened? You know, it, it was really a perfect storm. It's hard to really put your finger on exactly what happened. Nothing has ever been quite like that. It was a brilliant tweet. It was a very good sandwich. And then it just took off. And just to remind everybody, it, it launches in, in mid-August. And then, and then by, by this time in 2019, people are lining up around the block. People are rushing Popeyes. The, it, it sometimes you know, loses yeah. control of the crowds. The chicken sandwiches go scarce. Some people were trying to resell them at exorbitant prices. Just, just, just mania for a chicken sandwich. Yeah, and they ran out in like less than two weeks and had to pull it off the menu and then train their restaurants, work the supply chain to get enough supplies for chicken sandwiches. And then they reintroduced it in November and it continued to go crazy which blows my mind because if you take a product off the menu, you lose some energy like that. That yeah. is what we all thought was going to happen, and uh, it didn't. It was, it was incredible. And, and then so many other fast food restaurants try to get in on this to the point where everyone brands it the, the chicken sandwich wars. Four years later, mm-hmm. do you feel like that phrasing is still accurate? Because I still feel like I see, and I often order, chicken sandwiches everywhere I go. Yeah, I think the branding still works. We had somewhere in the neighborhood of 50 restaurant chains based on our account that came up with an upgraded chicken sandwich. For a while, it got to the point that you had to have a higher quality chicken sandwich in the fast food business if you were going to sell chicken sandwiches. It was a price of doing business. You describe right there 
high-quality chicken sandwiches. I mean, how would you describe that? Because the basic concept of a chicken sandwich is pretty straightforward, but, but like you said, there was a quality increase. There was a production increase. What is it that makes a chicken sandwich high-quality? Well, you have to have, uh, you know, sort of whole-breast filet. Um, you know, you're, you're not really going to overly process it. Um, we had all kinds of efforts on that in terms of how the breading was, how uh, Burger King came out with one, which was hand-breaded on site uh, and very complicated, as it turned out. Uh, you have a higher-quality bun, a brioche bun, something along those lines. You just upgraded it from the traditional ingredients that you would find at a fast food brand. And you had to have a good chicken sandwich, really. Mm -hmm. At least that was the thought. I will be fully honest. We purchased a Popeye's chicken sandwich to have in the studio during this conversation. And I decided to take a bite during that answer. I'm sorry. <laughs> I've had plenty. I think to me, the thing that makes this, this renaissance of chicken sandwiches is the placement of pickles. I feel like I really appreciate a solid, crispy pickle in the middle of the chicken sandwich. It kind of makes the chicken sandwich. It really does. I mean, the pickle is, in my opinion, a necessity. How have sales been? Because the hype seems to have kept up. You talked about the fact that it's a mainstay on the menu. Are we all still buying as many chicken sandwiches now as we were back then? And, and how big of a force are they in sales for places like Popeye's? Sure. At Popeye's, the hype died down a bit. You have a lot of competitors in the business, but they still have a higher level of sales overall now than before they came out with their chicken sandwich quite a bit it was a big big deal to Popeyes it changed the face of of that brand and it it is roughly maintained do you have a personal favorite can you journalistically say what your what your favorite is yeah I can say All yeah right. no you know, no what shake, is it? shake Shack shake I've Shack. been on the record Shake Shack has the best chicken sandwich yeah for sure I've had that it's good very delicious I just really like the flavor of 